Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for the Wilmington, Ohio Church of Christ. We pray that this message will inspire you and help you grow closer to God in your faith. Be sure to stick around after the message to find out more about how you can take your next best step. Enjoy the message. Don't you just love Jesus? I mean, amen. And I'm so excited because did you know that we are just seven years away from the 2,000th anniversary of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? And I don't know. Now, there are some who may argue that date. I mean, I know right now in the church, there's a whole group of translators and churches that are coming together to, by the year 2033, make sure the Bible is translated into every known language on the face of the earth. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? Uh, One of the reasons for that is that Jesus says that we're gonna be able to hear the word of God in every tribe and tongue and nation. Well, so then they wanna get the Bible translated so that everybody has the Bible in every nation. That's a fantastic, I'm so excited about that. Except Bible scholars know that Jesus was actually born in six to four AD, which means he actually probably died in somewhere between 27, 29 AD, not 33 AD, but you know, those are details we can argue about. So, you know, but anyway, I think 29 AD makes the most sense based on a bunch of historical stuff. Not that it matters much, except maybe because it's been 2000 years, that means we're close. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not a prophet. I'm not giving you dates and times. Nobody knows the day or the hour Jesus is coming back, and I certainly don't. But wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome if we're that close, seven years? Woo! And Jesus can come back, split the eastern sky, we can all go home, and all this. After the last two years, do you get a little anxious sometimes? Anybody like, all right, let's get there. Let's, Jesus, I ever feel like John? You know, at the end of the even so, come, Lord Jesus, right? I mean, are you ready? I, I know Peter and Paul also thought they were living in the last days, so this just makes me like them. But if Jesus came back, are you ready? I mean, aren't you excited that Jesus, the Lord of glory, who knows and loves us, is coming back? Amen, kind of. Man, you guys, I bet you cheer more today for teams on your television, then you're excited about Jesus coming back. I mean, Jesus, if Jesus came back, wouldn't that be exciting? Yeah. yeah. I think the reason we're hesitant is because we're not sure which Jesus we're going to meet. I mean, we all know we're going to meet the forgiving Jesus, right? Who, who know Jesus. We're going to meet the Jesus who died on the cross for us. We're going to meet the Jesus who loved children and cast out demons and healed the lame man. We know we're going to meet that Jesus, and we're all excited about that. But sometimes we think about the Jesus from our passage today, and maybe we're not as anxious. If you'll turn with me in John chapter 2, verse 13, starting in verse 13. Maybe if I can find it. Sorry where we read the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us 
as to your authority to do these things. And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. I'm ready for the Jesus who forgave me to come back. I'm not sure I'm ready for this one. Or like Revelation tells us in chapter 2, but I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Or in verse 14 and 16 where he says, but I have a few things against you because you have, there are some who hold to the teachings of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things, sacrificed idols, and commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Or verse 20 where he says to another church, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her off a bed of, on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one according to his deeds. Man, I'm ready for Jesus to come back, but I'm not sure I'm ready for that Jesus. Because sometimes, when I think about what Jesus has called us to do and who Jesus has called us to be and who Jesus was and how I look compared to who Jesus was, I see how far I have to go. If we're going to be the church that Jesus called us to be, we have to be a church ready to repent. Because this Jesus is also coming back. Between first service and this service, Dale sent me a text and reminded me that the first time Jesus came, he came with nails in his hands. The second time, he's bringing his sword. And listen, I, I, I'm not here to make you feel worried because <laughs> if you know Jesus and you've accepted him as your savior, the Bible tells us that his blood forgives us once and for all, and so his forgiveness is ours, and you will be okay before the throne of God if you know Jesus. And the only, the only test question you're gonna have is do you know Jesus and does he know you? And if you know Jesus and he knows you, you're gonna be okay. But I don't wanna just be okay. I want him to be proud of me. I would like this Jesus to come back and be proud of me. The Jesus who walked into the temple where the worship of God for the Israelites was centered. And he came at Passover time, which is supposed to be the greatest time. And he sees something that disrupts his soul. Now let's be clear. When this practice started in the temple, it was not evil initially. At least it wasn't intended to be. The reason for the, the selling of doves and oxen in the temple and the reason for uh, the money changers is that it's practical 
more practical to take your first fruits if you live in North Galilee and sell them and then bring the money to the temple and buy new sacrifices when you want to offer your repentant sacrifices before the Lord at Passover. It just, it, it made more sense for everybody to not be traveling with all these things loaded on oxen and carts, and some couldn't, and it was just, and so it was just a, it was a practical thing. However, very quickly, men began to figure out how they could make a little piece of it. And something very practical that was intended to help people get closer to God and help people repent became something that became a barrier in their way because it cost more and it cost more and it was harder and people were losing and the poor struggled to make it to the altar because of things man had put in place. Not intentionally wrong initially, but they weren't willing to get rid of them when they became a barrier. And just for a minute, you gotta imagine the disciples with Jesus when you come into the temple on this day and Jesus walks in you see him look around, and then he walks over either right near the entrance to the temple or maybe on the outside, I don't know, wherever the bushes were or the cords were, not sure where he found those, and he sits down and he starts weaving or braiding. Hey, Jesus, what are you doing? Every so often, he ties one of those braids into a knot, <laughs> and he he's said, they, we don't have any questions from the disciples, but you got to know, they were wondering, what is he doing? Is he making prayer knots so we can, I, I don't know. What's, it, it's getting bigger and thicker. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets up and literally cleans house. I mean, he's beating people with this scourge of, of knots made from thorns or something that he's made it out of. He's, he's taken the time to make an instrument to drive out those who are doing things to keep people from getting to the altar. Those who've become criminals over something that was intended to be good. And it's become wrong, and Jesus knows it's wrong because it's no longer about being, because the, the temple of God is no longer a house of prayer. And Jesus turns over, I mean, he, he's flipping tables and he's driving people out of the temple. I mean, this guy is, is just, I mean, he's a force. That Jesus, there are moments when I look at my life and I wonder, I wonder if I'm ready for him to come back. Last July, I was sitting with a bunch of pastors and we were praying. We've been praying together since 2008, group of pastors. Not all of us have been part of the group because guys have come and gone in town, but we've had a group of pastors here in our community praying for you every week since 2008. And, um, I've been fortunate to be a part of that group the whole time. But we got talking about evangelism and people uh, not knowing Jesus. And did you know that 69,000 people die every day without knowing Jesus? 69,000 people every day. And then we began talking about how, uh, how there are probably children in our community whose only knowledge of Jesus is the cuss word that their parents use in their home. They don't really know Jesus. They just know the, the name. And to take it a step further, we began to talk about how most Christians 
between six months to two years into their faith have no non-Christian friends. The average Christian has no non-Christian friends. Now, for some of you who are young in your faith, that is a necessary thing. Because of your struggles and your particular demons that you have to fight against and your particular sins that you have to stand away from, you have had to separate yourself from the people you used to know so that they don't drag you back down. And I get that. Because we want to learn to live holy and we want to be holy gods. And to become that, sometimes we have to cut off people from our lives who don't know Jesus because we have to be safe. And I get that. I really do. Some of you, that's where you are. And I totally understand. But that ain't me. I mean, I gave my life to Jesus at eight. But the eight years prior to that, I was in church. And all the years since then, I've known Jesus. And the only thing, and now I can follow it. I'm not saying I'm, I can't fall into sin. I can't. If I don't keep my accountability with my brothers around me, if I don't read the scripture and spend time with Jesus in prayer every day, if I get myself caught up in things that are of this world and entertainment of this world or ideas of this world or desires of this world, I can allow my faith to be snuffed out, to be strangled out, much like weeds coming up, if I'm not careful. But it's not going to happen because I hang, hung around non-Christians. It's not. If I keep those things in place, I've got all the boundaries. I have the boundaries I need to be safe and be around non-Christians. And as we sat there having that conversation, I realized I didn't have any non-Christian friends. And I don't know that this Jesus would be proud of that. So I began to repent. I say began because I began to pray, God, forgive me and teach me something new. And I, I ended up writing a little book about it so that I could have a plan that I could come back to for how I'm gonna begin to change my mindset and my heart so that I begin to reach people for Jesus and make that a goal of my life, that I find myself around those who don't know Jesus so that I can share the riches that God has given me with them. And I started trying to figure that out, and I'm still working on it, and I still have a long way to go. But two weeks, two weeks after that day, when I began to pray, we had a Thursday night karate class that I wasn't able to attend, so Dale taught. And that night, almost nobody attended. In fact, we had one student show up, Carter. And Dale said to Carter at the end of class, because we always do a little devotion at the end of class to tell our students more about Jesus. And Dale said, you know the story of David and Goliath? And Carter said, no. And Dale said, oh, what? Well, I mean, you know about when Jesus died on the cross for you though, right? No. And Dale looked at his dad, who was the only other person in the room, and said, hey, do you know about Jesus dying on the cross? No. Carter had been in our class for almost six months. And I didn't know he didn't know Jesus. I assumed because I have a Christian dojo where we train Christian leaders through the martial arts and make that, I mean, that's a big deal for us. That's kind of who we are. And we've had some people not come because that's not what they want. And I, that's fine. That's what we do. I just assumed I was wrong. 
my heart had to be changed so that I began to see those in need who needed me to share the riches God has given me so that they can know him. I wonder, are we really ready for Jesus to come back? Because this Jesus is coming. And there are three things from this particular story of Jesus cleansing the temple that I think we've really got to lock in on if we're going to begin to shift and find ourselves in the place we need to be so that we can be the people that when Jesus comes, when this Jesus, the just, the, the kingly, the, the strong, powerful Jesus of righteousness returns, he's not just here saving us, he's proud of us. Three things I think we see in this particular story. First of all, we need to understand that to live justly is love. If you want to love people, you need to live justly. We've had a lot of issues go on in our country over the last couple years that have to do with justice. A lot of questions about how just are we being. And politically, you can debate those things. And the truth is, there are some things that we need to change. The question is, are you living justly? I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do things as Americans where we actually have the ability to vote and make changes, to make changes where they need to be made. But more than that, are you living justly with your brother and sister? Are you treating everybody with equity? Are you giving God prominence and the love of God prominence as you share your life with those around you? Are you treating every human being as if they were created in the image of God to bear his image for others? Or have you divided an us and them line somewhere? Because the only us and them line in the New Testament is those of us who have the truth and those who need the truth from us. Those who live in darkness are no different than you used to be, except that they don't know the light. And our job may be to recognize where people are living in darkness so we don't live in darkness, but we're not supposed to separate so much from the people of darkness that we don't take them the light. And to live justly is to bring the light of Jesus into every conversation, into every, every place we work, every place we go, every place we live, that the conversation of living justly comes with us. And when we do that, we are bringing the love of Christ. We call out that which is wrong and we stand for that which is right. And whether everybody around us agrees or not, whether the laws agree, whether politics agree, none of that matters. What would Jesus do? How would Jesus live? How would Jesus love? What is the right thing in this moment for the person I'm in contact with? How should I treat them? That's love. The second thing we have to recognize is we can't let man-made barriers get in the way of people coming to Jesus. I'm gonna say something that's gonna upset some of you. I think that's why Dale lets me preach. Because I'll say the things that'll upset you. And he can stay safely at home. The church in America 
has changed. And the last two years have created dramatic change in the church in America for good and struggle. There is disruption that will not be undone. And unless we are willing to embrace those things that are man-made structures and release them and hold tightly to those things that are from God himself, we will not be able to accomplish the mission that God has set out for us. Just as an example, do you struggle sometimes on Sunday when you recognize we're just not as full as we used to be? Some people still haven't come back. And they're not going to. And some of them aren't coming back and they still love Jesus. They haven't abandoned their faith. They just aren't leaving their faith in an hour at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. They're out doing more to reach people for Jesus than I do. Now, we're not to give up the gathering together of the brethren. Agreed. But 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning isn't special. You can gather together with brethren on Tuesday night at 7. Or Friday night at 7, which I'm not sure is exactly from Jesus, but that's when the Dove Life group I'm meeting with right now is meeting, so I'm going. I like my Fridays. I'm having to pray about repentance. But sometimes the way we do things gets in the way of the message that we're trying to deliver. And there's an entire generation that is coming up right now that my kids are a part of, and a lot of these kids in here are a part of, that would rather sit together with seven people and study deeply about Jesus and know him more deeply than they ever have and discover more about him than they've ever discovered so that they can draw closer to him and share him with their friends in a way that actually brings their friends to him, but they're not happy sitting in rows looking at a guy on a stage. Especially when it's me, because you gotta look at me. Sorry. Now listen, all I'm saying is things have changed and we cannot let our man-made systems become barriers to those who are trying to find Jesus. Now, there are other people out there who need our rose. And I'm not saying we should abandon what we're doing. I'm saying it's changed. And we have to be ready to remove anything that we have created as a barrier. Now, there are some things you can't remove. Do not remove the word of God from the message. The word of God is the message. If you remove the inspired scripture from your message, you are no longer doing church. You are no longer following Jesus. The message remains the same. The methods are going to have to change if we're going to reach the next generation for Jesus. They're just gonna have to. And honestly, I don't know exactly what they're gonna look like next. But this isn't the first time Jesus has disrupted his people. I mean, the Christian church, we in the Restoration Movement, we like to say we're trying to get back to a New Testament model of church. Well, here's the reality. In Acts, here's what we read. Acts chapter two, Jesus, or Peter preached, about Jesus, and 3,000 people came to, 
believe that day. And then they continued to share and different things happened where they were persecuted. And every time they were persecuted and preached the gospel, hundreds of people, lots of people would come to Jesus again. And then there was a little disruption where some widows who were Greeks weren't being treated very well. Um, and so the disciples, the apostles decided to pull away to focus on prayer and studying the word. And they raised up new leaders in the church. And the church in Jerusalem experienced a time of peace and blessing. And everything in the church was reaching people. People were coming to know Jesus. It was an amazing time, except they were staying in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, and they weren't going anywhere. And you know what God allowed to happen? A great persecution rose up against the church, and they scattered into Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. While Jesus is a God of, God is a God of order and Jesus is a God of compassion, he is also a God of disruption and conviction that causes us to change so we can reach more people for him. And we have to be willing to put aside our man-made measures so they don't become barriers. Okay? Third thing, we must become a holy temple of God. Let me explain what I mean here. The temple was designed as a little Eden in the midst of God's people. Initially, it was the tabernacle that moved with God's people wherever they went. And then when they established themselves and the kingdom was established and uh, Solomon got the call, he built the temple as a small little representation of Eden and, and that garden area where, once again, the tree of life was and man walked with God. This is what Jesus means when he says, my house will be a house of prayer. It will be the place where people walk and talk with God. That's what the temple is supposed to be. Because in the garden, that's what Adam did. He got his knowledge, his wisdom, his understanding from God himself as he walked in the cool of the evening with, with God and that's what God did. They talked and they walked together. But Jesus does something at the, end of this, at the end of this passage that shifted theology forever. He says, tear this temple down, and in three days I will build it up. And initially, they thought, the Pharisees thought, he was talking about the building they were in. But the disciples recognized he was talking about his own body. And in that moment, Jesus shifted theology to make it clear that the temple of God is now to be in you and in me. We are to be a representation of that place where people can live at peace and talk to God. Are you a house of prayer? Would you describe your life that way? When I walk through the world, do people see a place where God is and they can speak to him and know him? Do I live walking and talking with God each day, allowing him to be the voice and him to be the way that moves in and through me? That's what Jesus did in this moment. And Paul reiterates it in 1 Corinthians when he says, 
Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? Are you a house of prayer? Are you a place where God is being communicated with on a regular basis? One of the things I recognized when I began to change to find more, to be able to reach more people for Jesus and to shift my life so that I was available to those who don't know him more. And I made myself available to those who don't know him more. And I looked for those who don't know him, even in places where I thought they weren't. Was I recognized I needed to spend more time talking with God. And so I began to change my own prayer life. And I began to work to make it better and stronger more complete. But the closer I drew to Jesus, the more I recognized what was missing. Dale shared with us a couple weeks ago that the church has a vision. That in the next three to five years, we want a disciple in every home in Wilmington. A disciple in every home. And praise God, when he shared that vision with other pastors, we are not alone. There are at least five other churches in our community that have embraced this dream, this mission, that we would bring a disciple to every home in Wilmington. But to do that, we're going to have to be a people of prayer. But to be people of prayer, some of us are going to have to repent. We're going to have to let God show us where we're not living justly. We're going to have to let God heal us where we have put up barriers that are keeping other people from coming to him. And then we can become a people with whom God dwells and speaks and walks with and others will know When I heard Dale two weeks ago and realized that we need to repent, and more than that, just to be fair, I realized I need to repent. I began to pray. Father, make me like you. And then as I prepared this week to preach, And I read this passage. I said, wait a minute. Hold on. If it means you've got to weave some stuff together and beat me with a scourge, maybe we can talk. If it means you're going to disrupt everything in my life, hold on. Let's talk about it before we actually go down that road. I mean, I want to be like you, Jesus. Don't get me wrong. I just don't want, I mean, if it's going to be hard, anybody with me? If it means we gotta go through a worldwide pandemic, God, let's not do that. But no. God, make me like you. Whatever it takes. And that's a scary prayer, because he usually says, okay. 
ready to repent, to let God convict you of what you need convicted of so that you can become a house of prayer. You can become a place where the barriers are removed and those who don't know Jesus can come to him. And when others look at you, they, they will say, that's a person of love. Are you ready? Because I think some of us need to repent. But if we do, and we let the Holy Spirit do his work to transform us, to make us more like him, whatever it takes, we'll become more like him so that when he does come back, our response can be even so. Come, Lord Jesus. Thanks again for joining us. If you need someone to pray with you, talk to, or maybe you just need more information about our church, please visit us online at wcconline.org connect. Fill out that connect card so we can reach out and help you take your next best step. Thanks again for joining, and we will see you back here next time.